Please rise for the reading of God's word from 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's word. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Over the next few Sundays, I want to address a critical temptation for the church. And by the church, I mean the broader church, the church throughout the world, which necessarily includes our denomination, includes our local church. Moreover, this includes each of us as individual members of the church, for these are temptations that are common to all of us. New and young Christians need to be instructed in the foundations of our faith. Older Christians need to be refocused and encouraged to remain steadfast and immovable in the essential things. As our text says, we are all from time to time in need. Uh, There's a need for us to be convinced, rebuked, exhorted. That's the work of the ministry of the pastor, to bring God's word, to do all these things. And we all need those things from time to time. It is always the case that there are certain things going on in the world, in our nation, or in our community or for that matter, in our homes, that threaten to water down and to undermine the Christian faith. That includes your faith and the faith of your children. And so the Apostle's charge to Pastor Timothy was for him to remember that he always stands before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That awareness of his presence is essential. This is where we must all begin. It's where we must all end. Thus we have gathered again on this first day of the week to remember and to refocus our attention on this essential fact of life. We live in the presence of God. Whether people believe it or not, and most of them don't, the text tells us, God reveals, God tells us, that, we will all, that he will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in the kingdom. Every last one of us will be judged and given account for our deeds. Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my heavenly Father. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, what will he judge? Well, he's going to judge your doctrine, your belief, especially as it is manifest in your conduct. He won't ask what you believe. He'll extract what you believe from how you live. In this, Paul is also telling us that our perspective must be long-range. It must see beyond the moment. It must be eternal. Don't be overwhelmed. In other words, by the current circumstances, he tells Timothy. And remember, this is Paul's last will and testament. Paul is in prison in Rome. This is the last letter he will write to Timothy, his spiritual son. These are his parting words. These are the important things. Don't be overwhelmed by men. Don't be overwhelmed by circumstances. Life under the sun isn't all there is. There's something more. Now most of you are sincere and earnest about your faith and and your commitment to follow Jesus Christ. You take your baptism seriously and you are eager to receive his word this morning. And so, uh, that's why most of you are here this morning and every other Sunday morning. So allow me as your pastor to thank you, to commend you for such faithfulness, for such steadfastness. However, I want to, I, I, I hope that you are also aware of the fact that there are some big changes coming to your life. Some are good, some are difficult. You're not sure when, you're not sure where, you're not sure what, but change is certain for all of us. These big changes are coming to the world, they're coming to the church, they're coming to your family, and they will come to you as individuals. The question is... Will you be ready when they come? Right after Jesus warned of the coming day of judgment that we just read about, where he says, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. These are the next words that he said. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, the word of God, and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, And the rain descended, and the flood came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded upon the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. See, the Bible is not just another bestseller. It is unique, it is infallible, it is powerful, it is living, it is authoritative, and it abides forever. About 15 years ago, I preached a couple of sermons titled, The Wonderful Words of Life, and my plan is to 
expand upon and re-preach those sermons in the next few weeks to try and be sure that we are still standing on the firm ground of Scripture alone as we move forward. The Proverbs warn, do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. If we as a church and individually have any hope of facing the storm-laden future, it will be because we are firmly anchored in the truth. And Jesus, as Jesus said it succinctly as he prayed in John 17 to his Father, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. Thy word is truth. In addition to the sanctifying word, we've also been given the sanctifying sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Pastor Eugene Peterson asked, but in the wreckage, the wreckage of the world, all words sound like mere words. But in the wreckage, what difference can water and a piece of bread and a sip of wine make? And the answer is, baptism makes you holy. It sets you apart. And the bread and the wine and the body and blood of Christ nourish you week by week and keep you set apart. And the word is the only sure word that you have. You don't know very much. You know what you've heard. You know what other people have told you. But then you know what God has told you. That's the only thing that's certain. And so allow me this morning in this introductory sermon to lay out just a few of the challenges and problems that I see lay ahead of us. These are both ancient as well as new threats to the church and to us. And if we are not established and if we are not equipped, we will fail. An existential threat is generally defined as something that is a threat to your existence. An existential threat. Paul had experienced and anticipated these kinds of threats for the church. And thus, in this last letter to Timothy, he sought to prepare and warn him of what was coming his way. The kind of threat I'm referring to comes in a variety of forms. From her inception, the people of God, that is the church, have been assaulted from within and without, both directly and indirectly. The largest threat, though, that comes, uh, the largest threat comes from those who would change her beliefs and values and water down her message in order to disarm her, to debase the message until it's worthless. We see examples of this in the Old Testament. In fact, we can spend several weeks going through this because it happens over and over and over. But just a few. Other gods and cultures would influence and eat away at people's loyalty to Jehovah. Thus there came a point where Joshua laid it on the line and he says, Now therefore, as he assembles the people, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. 
Pick a side. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, if you like those gods, go for it. But as for me and my house, we will serve Jehovah. Do you remember when Israel fled before the Philistines and the Ark of the Covenant was captured and Eli, the priest, dropped dead? We read in 1 Samuel 4, 19-22. Now, Eli's daughter-in-law, Phinehas, his wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the Ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead... She bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, and the meaning of Ichabod here, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because her father-in-law and her husband had died. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. We see an example of this in the New Testament. For example, Paul warns in Acts 20, for I know this, as he's writing to the leaders of the church, he said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. We see, an example, see examples of this all over church history. The Reformation was all about trying to recover what had been lost over centuries of drift and corruption in the church. Today, Europe is strewn with abandoned churches where God has removed the lampstand and written Ichabod over the top of the doors. We have seen and are seeing examples of this in our own lifetimes. How many denominations, I want to ask you this, how many denominations... Or for that matter, how many churches can you name that have remained faithful to the word and sacrament for a hundred years? Three generations. Not many. Denomination after denomination has drifted ever so slowly at first, but soon gained momentum until backsliding away from the rock of our salvation. The pressure is on us, it is on you, it is on me to follow the same path to destruction. We are bombarded daily by every wind of doctrine. The winds of compromise blow hard from every direction. The storm will not abate and we, the church, are called to be the lighthouse in the midst of that storm. The unmovable, the constant thing. The unchangeable thing and ministers of the gospel are called to be the watchmen on the towers. And unfortunately, too many have been derelict in their duty. And as a result, like 
Jerusalem of old, the walls have fallen and crumbled. And like the days of Nehemiah, who was called back to rebuild, we must once again take up the sword in one hand, the trowel in the other, while the sand ballots of the world mock in derision. We are told to stay in our sandboxes and to leave the real world to those who are politically sophisticated. But God is the creator of all the world, and neither he nor his servants will be exiled from it. As Eugene Peterson writes, pastoral work refuses to specialize in earthly or heavenly, human or divine. The pastor is given a Catholic cosmos to work in, not a sectarian back 40. The world defies God and refuses to have him or his word rule over them. That is the central problem and the fundamental antithesis between belief and unbelief. It always has been. All this current lunacy over identity, particularly sexual identity, is fundamentally about hatred of God. I hope you understand that that the wave that is on its way isn't one of mild political disagreement between conservatives and liberals. This is, as the Bible frames it, a collision between good and evil. Each of us is again called to choose a side. Those who attempt to stand in the middle will be torn apart. You cannot serve two masters. Unfortunately, many in the church are among this number. And as a result, we are being led into captivity. We are forsaking our birthright. To the world, the Bible is worse than a joke. It is worse than irrelevant. It's evil, positively evil. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Somebody's view of the world, somebody's view of God, somebody's view of humanity is going to prevail. These are polar opposites. Humanity is being reshaped into any and everything contrary to the image of God. He will not define us, nor our thinking, or our sexuality. We're not created. We are evolved from nothing, and thus we can shape ourselves. We're biological machines to be manipulated and used however we desire. We will not only modify our bodies, the ultimate goal is to modify our souls into whatever we please. And how dare you suggest that we can't. And sadly, too often, the church is slinking along in these shadows, marching to perdition right behind them. You say, preacher, what is all this hellfire and brimstone? And I say, with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 9, Therefore, We make it our aim 
whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. Have we already lost sight of the fact that we are not okay? We are actually lost? That we are without hope in the world? Has the doctrine of hell become completely quenched and snuffed out? And there is no fear of God before their eyes. Science has given us some good things. Science is a servant. She's also told us many lies and given us a meaningless universe. We don't know where it came from. We don't know why it's here. And we don't know where it's going. It's really neat. You can do some neat stuff with it. And oh, you, you're, you're less than nothing. You're dust. You're cosmic dust. Here for just a very, really brief moment to appear on the stage until you are blown away into oblivion. Soon to be forgotten and replaced. You're here for a few seconds. You understand that in this approach, you and your children are very disposable. You are here to produce. And as was revealed just in the last couple of weeks in New York, in Kentucky, if killing your baby makes you more productive than this they say, is the path to freedom. George Orwell's 1984 arrived a little late, but welcome to the future. Our history is being rewritten and torn down and replaced and revised. And for the, and for the children that do survive... Essentially, they say, give us their little blank slates and a whole new script will be written for them. We'll reprogram. You won't be needing those Bibles anymore. The Bible is just a book of hate crimes. And we've been liberated from all of that. You see, the Word of God always divides. Calvin noted, it is the negative... Excuse me, it is the, the native property of the divine word never to make its appearance without disturbing Satan and rousing his opposition. It is our duty to protect it and to defend it against all attacks, and the greatest attacks have always arisen from within the church itself. If we don't take our stand and do more than wring our hands, our grandchildren will not have any sure word at all. This is the everlasting word of God that we're fighting for, not friends and not political advantage. I want to allude to a story in the Old Testament. Second Chronicles 18, we have a great example of a courageous prophet named Micaiah. So Ahab wanted to know uh, if Jehoshaphat would make a political alliance with him and go to war with him. And so Jehoshaphat told Arab to consult some prophets who would, tell, who would tell them what they wanted to hear. 
So the 400 false prophets said in uh, 2 Chronicles 18.5 to Ahab, Go up, for God will give it into the, hands, into the king's hands. You're going to win. Everything's going to be great. Ahab heard what he wanted to hear. Jehoshaphat followed up by asking Ahab, I was wondering, is there not still a prophet of Jehovah here that we might inquire of him? Here was Ahab's response. He said, there is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him. Because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And so the various false prophets spoke, and then a servant went to get Micaiah, and he said to him, you can see, where is Micaiah? We found him. So you go get him. And he says to him, the servant, the king, now listen. The words of the prophets are with one accord, according, uh, and, uh, according, excuse me, one accord to encourage the king. Therefore, please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak encouragement. And Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, whatever my God says, that I will speak. At first, Micaiah sarcastically tells Ahab what everyone else has been telling him. Uh, but the king knew he was being sarcastic, and so he presses him for the truth. So Micaiah tells him that, the th- that things are not going to go well. And, of course, Ahab doesn't like to hear that either. In verse 22, Micaiah says this, Therefore, look, the Lord, or Jehovah, has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. Likewise, God has put a lying spirit on the campuses of many or most colleges and universities and denominations and churches. They deny or pervert the word of God, distorting it, twisting it, corrupting our youth and our society. Back to 2 Chronicles 18. Then Zedekiah, the son of uh, Shaniah, went near and struck Micaiah on the cheek, slapped his face for saying these things. And he said, which way did the spirit from the Lord go from me to speak to you? And Micaiah said, Indeed, you shall see. I love this response of his to this servant. You'll see on the day when you go into the inner chamber to hide. Then the king of Israel said, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, uh, to Joash, the king's son, and say, Thus says the king, Put this fellow in prison. And feed him with the bread of affliction and water of affliction until I return in peace. But Micaiah said, If you ever return in peace, the Lord has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. 
Micaiah knew a sure word of the Lord. He was unashamed. He was not a coward. He didn't care what all what everybody else was saying. He said, I'm going to say what God said, like it or not. It's the truth. And then there's Ezekiel, chapter 2, 1 through 8. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet, and I will speak to you. And the Spirit entered me, and he spoke to me, and he set me on my feet. And I heard him who spoke to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. But, <coughs> excuse me, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. For they are impudent and stubborn children, and I'm sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house, yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words, though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions. Do not be afraid of their words or dismayed by their looks, though they are a rebellious house. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Paul says to Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Now if you look at chapter 3, 2 Timothy, he says there's going to be season things, are going to, there's going to be ups and downs, there's going to be all kinds of mess going on in the culture. He's not talking about Timothy's personal ups and downs, though that would be included. He's talking about the cultural ups and downs. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. It doesn't matter what's going on in here. You've got one job. You preach the word unapologetically, with authority, with power. Why? Because it's the only thing that can save people. It's the only hope. It is. These are the wondrous, wonderful words of life. Let all men, all, let, let God be found true, though all men are liars. This is the one sure thing. Where is the zeal in your heart? For the word of God, does it burn within you? Is it life or death to you? Do you hate it in your bones when you see it corrupted or distorted or spat upon? Where is your zeal for God's honor? The Apostle Paul, who didn't seek to please men, wrote in Galatians 1, But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preaches another gospel, then then what we have originally preached, let him be accursed, let him be anathema, let him go to hell. Strong words. Jude was inspired by God to write to you and me, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to all the saints. And God doesn't like anybody to tamper with his word. 
Revelation 22, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life for the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. We are currently engaged in a battle and a war, an ancient one. The spirit of compromise with the world is everywhere. The pressure is on all of us all the time to go along and get along, or at least to not put up any resistance. Fearing God and not man is critical to our success. The only thing that can vanquish these foes is an unchanging Word of God. A Word of God that can change is no problem for the world. They don't have a problem with that at all. But a Word of God that doesn't change, that's unnerving. That will destroy the many fail to see the critical nature of our struggle, a struggle which Christ himself calls us to. And so, in the 1920s and 1930s, Dr. J. Gresham Machen, a great courageous man of God, uh, had been at Princeton and left Princeton over some of these very kinds of issues, became one of the founding professors at Westminster Theological Seminary, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but while he was still struggling against what was called modernism, we would say liberalism, in the Presbyterian Church USA, he wrote this. The, the plain man in the church has difficulty understanding the nature of the struggle. He does not yet appreciate the real gravity of the issue. He does not see that it makes very little difference how much or how little of the creeds of the church the liberal preacher affirms. The modernist preacher might affirm every jot and tittle of the Westminster Confession, for example, and yet be separated by a great gulf from the Reformed faith. It is not that that part is it's not that part is denied and the rest is affirmed, but all is denied because all is affirmed merely as useful and as symbolic, but not as truth. A thing that is useful may be useful for some and not for others, but a thing that is true remains true for all people and beyond the end of time. We, too, have become a church that seems to echo Pilate's musing. And by we, I mean the modern era. What is truth? When, in fact, the truth was standing right in front of him. I'll close today with these words from one of our confessions of faith, the Belgian Confession. We believe that those holy scriptures fully contain the will of God. And that, who, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scriptures. Nay, though it were an angel from heaven, as the apostle saith, for since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the word of God, it doth thereby evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is most perfect and complete, complete in all respects, 
neither do we consider of equal value any writing of men. However holy these men may have been with those divine scriptures, nor ought we to consider custom or the great multitude or antiquity or succession of times and persons or councils, decrees or statutes as of equal value with the truth of God. For the truth is above all, for all men are of themselves liars and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore we reject with all our hearts Whatsoever doth not agree with this infallible rule, which the apostles have taught us, saying, Try the spirits, whether they are from God. Likewise, if there come any unto you, and bring not this doctrine, receive them not into your house. Let's pray. O Lord, give pastors today such urgency about fulfilling their ministries, and give all of your people this same kind of zeal. Give your church increased zeal about preaching the gospel and doing the work of evangelism. Give us greater love for you and for your cause and greater love for your people and those who are lost. Give us greater patience, for we tend to be very impatient. There are so many who are indifferent toward the word and even hostile toward the word without realizing that it is the word that offends them. In the face of all opposition and discouragement, May we be consistent and steady. May we set an example for others in patient endurance. How often we become discouraged and frustrated. Lift us up and keep us from being weary in well-doing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 through 38 read, When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Every lost man or woman in every age of history wants to change the message of God. Because the message is alarming. God is holy. I'm a sinner. I'm under his wrath and curse. And I cannot save myself. This message must be modified or else I'm in big trouble. And that's a gross understatement. Pressure is put on all believers to water down the word of God, to make it a bit more palatable. People want all all that the world has and all that the devil has to offer, and they want heaven as well. People want their adultery and sin without the cost. But God's word also offers the only hope of rescue, of salvation. The gospel message is the rest of the story. If we compromise the first part of the message, then there is no good news left for the second part of the message. We can't be ashamed of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior, and we therefore cannot be ashamed of his word, 
To be ashamed of his word is to be ashamed of him. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. And so Paul had learned this lesson. And so as he enters into Rome, where it was illegal to preach the gospel, here's what he said. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live. By faith. Make us zealous for what is right, O God. Give us the desire and the power to stand for the truth and live the truth regardless of the consequences. Give us the willingness to suffer for righteous, righteousness' sake if it is necessary, and we know that inevitably it will become necessary. Give us the intellectual knowledge and ability to make a proclamation of the gospel and a defense of the faith. But even more, give us the preparation of life to defend the gospel by sanctifying Christ as Lord in our hearts and over all of life. Give us opportunities to account for the hope that is in us today and boldness to seize the opportunities with gentleness and reverence. Let our speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how we ought to answer each one. Indeed, make us salt and light in a corrupt and dark world. Bless now this Lord's Day, our rest and our delight. Bless our food and our fellowship, and bless our service to your kingdom, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen.